and this is where I get to kind of advertise a book. No, uh, well, yes and no. I get to talk about Richard Dawkins and about atheism uh, and uh, recent engagement I've had uh, with it. And yes, uh, my book, uh, responding to Richard Dawkins's book, Outgrowing God, is on the curriculum, but that's not my fault. I didn't do it, so don't blame me. <laughs> Uh, so, a couple of years ago, um, Richard Dawkins, how many people here have heard the name Richard Dawkins, kind of know of him, seen media appearances, read a book by him? Okay. Uh, just for anyone who hasn't, he's probably the most famous atheist in uh, Britain, indeed in the, the Anglophile uh, world. Uh, he's an evolutionary biologist who worked uh, at Oxford University. He's re retired now. He's an emeritus professor. Um, he um, came to prominence through writing a series of popular science books uh, which gradually became more and more attacks upon uh, religion and Christianity uh, in particular and um, he was kind of the leading figure in the so-called new atheist movement uh, that was sparked by the 9-11 attacks uh, in America uh, and the series of books attacking religion uh, that came out in the wake of that uh, by folks like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and so on. And uh, a few years ago he published this book called Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide, uh, which uh, the Guardian newspaper called an accessible junior version of The God Delusion. Now The, the God Delusion was his uh, best-selling new atheist kind of uh, polemic uh, sold millions of, of copies and this is a kind of version of that book aimed at a slightly younger audience. I would say kind of people your age and a few years younger, um, not kind of school kids but more kind of uh, uh, what would be kind of A-levels in, in my country and uh, undergraduates. Uh, paleontologist uh, Neil Shubin uh, in a review of the book said that with wit and logic and his characteristic flair for expressing complex ideas with uncanny clarity, Richard Dawkins separates myth from reality, uh, using myth in the modernist sense of a story that's not true, <laughs> right. and i.e. a religious story that's not true. Well, uh, the year after that, I managed to come out with my book, uh, Outgrowing God, question mark, and the question mark is important, <laughs> a Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate. This is uh, what I spent my time during Covid lockdown <laughs> producing. Uh, written in the form of a dialogue uh, between members of a student book club, so I appropriated a very ancient form of doing philosophy that goes right back to Plato, particularly famously, wrote a lot of his stuff in, that we, we have in, uh, in the form of dialogues. Uh, so I have the, the members of a student book group at a university and they happen to be reading Dawkins' book Outgrowing God as their book for that term. Uh, so uh, my book Outgrowing God question mark a beginner's guide to Richard Dawkins and the God debate uh, was written to encourage critical thinking about Professor Dawkins's arguments concerning particularly uh, God, the Bi uh, Jesus and the Bible. Um, I collected some uh, nice uh, endorsements, but let's not uh, focus too much on that. There we go. Uh, the book, uh, you'll notice, is dedicated to the colleagues and students I've met through NLA University College at Gimlekollen Christiansand, Norway, 
And to my goddaughter, Sophie Alexandra McCarricker, who was born 27th of September 2019, as I was involved in this, this project. She's just turned three. Uh, let me take you a little bit through the, 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 the contents and a reason why um, I'm kind of, because they're in this student book group reading through Dawkins' book, you'd think, well, they, they just start at the beginning of Dawkins' book and move their way through. And that's what I originally thought I was going to do when I started doing the book. But I ended up rearranging the order in which some of the topics were addressed for a significant reason. Um, so they begin uh, in the first chapter with questions like, you know, how do we define atheism and agnosticism and polytheism and theism and the incarnation and the trinity? So we're kind of getting clear what we're, what we're talking about, what the different viewpoints we're thinking about are, basically. Then they move on to questions about the historical reliability of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, and a focus on uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and whether that's something that there might actually be some evidence for, and a, a rational case to be made for. Third meeting, they move on to looking at the historical reliability of the Old Testament. Then they look at the question of... Uh, meta-ethics, that is, the, the nature of moral values. What kind of thing are moral values? And the moral argument for God. Uh, before then looking at um, normative ethics, that's uh, ethical systems that helps you to make ethical choices, like difficult choices in medical ethics or, and so on. Then they look at the ethical character of the biblical God, the biblical uh, character of God, whether or not you think his a real person, just as a sort of literary character. What do you make of his character? Now, Dawkins introduces his discussion and critique of Yahweh's moral character in his book before his chapters about moral values and moral, making moral judgments. And I think that's kind of a bit sneaky almost it's like let's get you making ethical decisions about you know judgments about the the character of the biblical god as presented in the bible and then let's move on to thinking more about about what is morality and how do we make moral decisions uh, it seemed to me that that was the wrong order to approach the topic in so i had to swap things uh, around and uh, have one of the students argue for we need to address this in a different order then we look at uh, evolution and the biological design argument. We look at evolutionary explanations of religion and ethics. Uh, we look at cosmology, the so-called Kalam cosmological argument and fine-tuning design arguments. And then there's a kind of uh, wrap-up summary discussion. So you can see it kind of covers quite a lot of territory. That's because Dawkins uh, does, but that gives you a kind of uh, map of, the, of the, the geography of the book, as it were. Uh, let me read you some from the book, because um, taking a, a more kind of this dialogue form and including a sort of element of, of drama and kind of almost soap opera within the characters, and each chapter starts with just a prose introduction that's just like a novel, uh, in a sense, before you get into the, the dialogue between the characters. Uh, so that was something I really in, in, enjoyed doing, and I'm going to uh, inflict some on you. There we go. Uh, the snow made a satisfying scrunching sound under Hiromi's combat boots as she walked towards the campus coffee cup cafe. 
Her first year abroad had been enjoyable, but also a little lonely. This year, she'd join a student book club. It would be a good way to meet people. And the book they were going to discuss dealt with a topic of genuine interest. Arriving at her destination, Hiromi stopped to remove her headphones and face mask, pocketing them inside her black leather jacket. Peering through the window, she could see why the cafe would be glad to fill some tables after lunchtime. The place was fairly empty, with a scattering of students absorbed by their phones or typing away at laptops, and several people sitting at a table in the corner opposite the barista station. That must be the club. Hiromi inhaled a deep lungful of cold air before pushing at the door and stepping into a warmth flavoured by coffee beans and steamed milk. Stamping the snow off her boots onto the sodden welcome mat, Hiromi heard a voice inviting her to take a place at the corner table. The voice belonged to a lady Hiromi recognised from the group's Facebook page as Professor Sophie Minerva, a tall woman with a calm, business-like expression and a warm but penetrating gaze. As Hiromi settled into the only remaining seat at the table, the professor asked everyone to introduce themselves and what they thought about the God question. And around the table were, and here are, the, here are our characters. Well, first of all, Professor Sophie Minerva. Uh, Sophie, as uh, an English name, of course, comes from uh, the Greek Sophia, which means wisdom. And Minerva is the name of the Roman goddess of wisdom. So uh, she's Professor Wisdom Wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> and in the 5th century AD a book by uh, Christian Martyr Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy, uh, which is a combination of, of poetry and kind of a dialogue between Boethius as he's in prison and Lady Philosophy, he describes Lady Philosophy as a tall woman with a calm, business-like expression and a warm but penetrating gaze. So, uh, Professor uh, Sophie is there to kind of be my, my neutral, information-giving, uh, kind of chairperson of the discussion. She doesn't take sides. Uh, she's just there to kind of keep them on topic and to occasionally quote something from ancient literature uh, off the top of her memory because she's got a really good memory. Uh, Hiromi, we've already met, an international student from Japan. I'm somewhat obsessed with Asian culture and Japan in particular, and anime and Asian film and so on, so I loved uh, sticking lots of uh, Japanese things into this book through Hiromi. Uh, she's studying music and philosophy, which are the subjects that I was originally studying at university when I first went. I went to do a degree in uh, uh, music and English literature and philosophy at Cardiff University and ended up with a single honours degree in philosophy, but that's another story. Uh, we have Thomas, an undergraduate studying classical antiquity. I studied classics at A-level. Uh, he describes himself as a sceptic and a neo-atheist. He is the character who's kind of really influenced by Dawkins and his friends. With, then we have Douglas, who's a postgraduate student of philosophy, and he describes himself as a classical atheist. He, he is the kind of atheist that thinks Richard Dawkins is the kind of atheist that gives atheism a bad name. 
because I wanted to, to show that not all atheists are the same, just as not all Christians are the same, not all atheists are the same, and they do disagree with each other over lots of stuff. And then we have Astrid, which according to my research, the name means godly strength. Um, she's an international postgrad student from Norway, describes herself as a Christian, inspired by, inspired by having studied communication and worldviews at NLA University College's Christian Sand Campus. Use the book to advertise, yes. <laughs> she was now studying theology abroad, right? Those are, those are our characters. And they are, I try to make them kind of rounded actual characters, not just uh, ciphers for their philosophical positions. So uh, they have subjects of study and hobbies that contribute to the discussion or offer readers additional sort of cultural enrichment. You can look up the the, the recipes for some of the uh, baked goods that uh, some of them bring to the, the study group and so on. Thomas quotes some useful classical literature from his course and he knits as a hobby. That becomes useful uh, in the story later. I link to recipes for Japanese and Norwegian snacks that the group eat. And Hiromi and Astrid, as I say, bond by discussing uh, music. Uh, they, they both love prog rock music. And there's even a YouTube musical playlist for the book uh, called Hiromi's Playlist, uh, which kind of reflects uh, Hiromi's thinking about things uh, as it moves on. Uh, so I try to give these characters some, some depth and some interest. Uh, Hiromi is pursuing some very deep questions about the nature of love, it becomes clear. Uh, I don't explain why, leave that up to you to imagine why that would be, but she's ex pursuing these deep questions about love. That's what she's really interested in. A and she wants to know, she says, to know if love is, is just a meaningless, subjective byproduct of nature, or if love is rooted in the depths of objective reality. Kind of, is love real or is it an, an illusion fobbed on us by our genes to get us to reproduce, like Richard Dawkins says. And it becomes clear through the book as we go on that there's something going on with Astrid's mental health. And I did that particularly because I didn't want the Christian character in the book to be kind of, become a Christian, life will be wonderful, everything's great, woohoo! You know? <laughs> I wanted to give her something that she's struggling with. Here's a, another introduction from another of those chapters that starts dropping some hints. Astrid slouched her way through the softly falling snow. Each exhaled breath condensed into a ghostly cloud of white. She was beginning to feel as numb on the outside as on the inside. She thought about turning around and heading back to bed. But she kept going, one foot in front of the other. Astrid found herself sitting, settling into a chair at the usual table in the campus coffee cup cafe. Glancing up, she saw she was the last to arrive. Professor Minerva waved off her apology and offered to buy her a drink. She declined. The professor insisted, something about putting colour in her cheeks. Not wanting to be rude, Astrid asked for black coffee. Um, she's Norwegian after all, so she has to have black coffee. Right? Yes. <laughs> Unzipping her woolen jumper, she began fiddling with her tablet. 
So that's kind of the, the in a sense, the, the artistic approach. And I, and I think the, the artistic approach, if you read the book, actually becomes important to the, the, the message that, w that one's dealing with as well, and not just dealing the, uh, this with a, at a purely kind of logical level, and a kind of existential level as well, right? Some key observations about Dawkins here. In an interview promoting Outgrowing God, uh, Dawkins said that he wants to rid the world, quote, of anything that's not evidence-based where factual knowledge is concerned. Things which are based on authority rather than on evidence. But Dawkins repeatedly makes unevidenced assertions that he expects readers of his book to believe on the authority of his say-say. There are no footnotes in Dawkins' book. There is no bibliography in Dawkins' book. I was astonished. Uh, and many, many of these assertions that he just tells his audience uh, that he assumes they're going to believe are just wrong. Just wrong. Um, here's a quote from Thomas from towards the end of the book. He says, I noted over a dozen false statements in Outgrowing God on points like the supposed lack of archaeological evidence for the existence of King David or camels supposedly being an anachronism out of, out of place in the Old Testament. He gets his facts wrong about Josephus's, a Jewish historian from the first century, Josephus's references to Jesus and about the design of the human eye and so on. Outgrowing God is basically riddled with misinformation. For example, pick up one of those examples there, Dawkins asserts that Abraham's camels are an anachronism. They, they shouldn't be in that historical time period that's being described in the Bible because, quote, the camel was not domesticated until many centuries after Abraham is supposed to have died. So here is one of Dawkins's example of the Bible getting something just historically wrong. So it's not trustworthy, right? But the thing is, Dawkins asserts that, he doesn't give any evidence for it, and he's wrong about it. Here's a quote from um, the comedy The Big Bang Theory from season seven, which was aired in 2013 to 14. Uh, conversation between the characters of Howard and Sheldon. Howard, we can't show up to your mum's empty-handed. We should bring something. Sheldon, I already am. I'm bringing the gift of knowledge. <laughs> Howard, oh boy. Sheldon, despite what her Bible says, recent archaeological studies indicate that although camels are referenced in the Old Testament, they didn't exist in the Middle East until hundreds of years later. Well, this is just as wrong as Dawkins is, but you, this is how the message kind of gets out into popular culture, even through things like sit sitcoms. Where, where's this coming from? Well, as Bryant Wood uh, explains, a study of camel bones from the copper mining site of Timna in Israel concluded that the use of domesticated camels at Timna in Israel 
quote, was not earlier than the last third of the 10th century BC. That's uh, from a newspaper article um, from 2013. Uh, New York Times reporter John Noble Wilford picked up on this story and penned the article, Camels Had No Business in Genesis in uh, February 10th, 2014 issue of New York Times. Now notice how a, an academic study about camel bones at Timna in Israel has now been reported in the New York Times as a study about camels having no business in Genesis. A quote from Wilford under the picture from his article, he says, uh, here's the, the annual camel race at, in the desert of Wadi Rum in Jordan from 2007, he says, radiocarbon dating was used to pinpoint the earliest known domesticated camels in Israel to the 10th century BC, decades after the Kingdom of David, according to the Bible. And it's this story that the Big Bang Theory is picking up on, and that Richard Dawkins has picked up on. But as the Orthodox Jewish rabbi and university professor Joshua Berman observes, camels in Genesis are right where they belong. It is true that camels were not domesticated in Israel until the time of Solomon. But read Genesis carefully and you'll see that all its camels come from outside of Israel, from Syria, Mesopotamia and Egypt, where there is ample evidence of domestication of the camel during the period of the patriarchs. Indeed, uh, British Egyptologist K.A. Kitchen, uh, in his book The Ancient Orient and Old Testament, says this. He says, it's often asserted that the mention of camels and their use is an anachronism in Genesis. This charge is simply not true, as there is both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and even use of this animal in the early 2nd millennium BC and even earlier. In his uh, exhaustive, rather exhaustive study of the domestication of camels in the ancient world, Professor K. Martin Hyde concludes the archaeological evidence points to the fact that the Bactrian camel was domesticated before the dromedary camel, you know, one hump and two hump camels, right? Uh, and was put into use by the middle of the third millennium or earlier. The gradual spread of the Bactrian camel seems to have reached uh, the Mesopotamian civilization sporadically by the middle of the third millennium and more frequently at the end of the third stroke beginning of the second millennium. The archaeological and inscriptional evidence allows at least the domesticated Bactrian camel to have existed at Abraham's time. Uh, other references you could look up at Kenneth Kitchen's uh, more recent book on the reliability of the Old Testament from 2003 or an article in Biblical Archaeology Review magazine by Mark Chavlaz, uh, Did Abraham Ride a Camel? from 2018. Uh, so it's not as if, uh, if Dawkins had done a little bit of Googling <laughs> or a bit of research, uh, it would have been difficult to find out that mentioning Abraham's camels was not an anachronism. Or again, Dawkins asserts King David made no impact on archaeology or on written history outside the Bible. Dawkins obviously doesn't know that publication of fragments of an old Aramaic stela 
from Tel Dan in 1993 and 1995, bears the first recognised non-biblical mention of the 10th century King David in a text reflecting events of the year 841, which would have been set up at no great interval after that date. This stela famously mentions the House of David. Uh, Eric Klein, who's a professor of classics, anthropology and history at George Washington University, uh, in his book um, on a very short introduction to biblical archaeology published by Oxford University Press, says uh, the finding of this inscription brought an end to the debate and settled the question of whether David was an actual historical person. We also have uh, the Misha inscription, or what's sometimes known as the Moabite stone, in which line 31 says, and the house of David inhabited Horonim. Uh, the town of Horonim is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 48, verses 3 to 7. And there was a, a recent uh, study, because, uh, you know, as there always is, there's scholarly debate over the interpretation of ancient artefacts and so on. But in a very recent study uh, led by Dr. Michael Langlis, uh, here, uh, reporting on um, results of his study in the Times of Israel, um, they used um, modern technology to more precisely be able to read the inscriptions on this stone. And he says, my conclusion for line 31 is that the most likely reading is Beat David, that's House of David. The new imaging technology that we have confirms the reading, Beat David. It's a good thing when science can confirm a hypothesis. So, here's uh, another quote from the book. Uh, Astrid, using her tablet. Tablets are great. They mean characters can now quote things without having to say, hang on a minute, I need to go to the university library. <laughs> they can just like, whoop, there it is. Oh, I've got this quote that's really useful. It, it makes it more natural for them to do that. Uh, she says, in, in that new scientist interview, Dawkins says he wants to encourage people to think for themselves whilst being keen not to indoctrinate, because that's, of course, what we criticise religious people for doing. But it seems to me that in Outgrowing God, Dawkins relies on people treating him as an authority and not thinking for themselves about his claims. Outgrowing God is an exercise in indoctrination. Now, by contrast with Dawkins' exercise in indoctrination, I provide references in my response book. I provide a bibliography and far too many recommended resources uh, that spill over into the web page for the book on my website. And I use the character of Sophie that I've mentioned before to teach critical thinking skills in the book by introducing readers to the logical fallacies that Dawkins falls into in various of his arguments. But if you're teaching your audience, that, you know, here's the logical fallacy that Dawkins has made in this argument, they now could notice that logical fallacy if you fall into it when you're arguing something, right? That's putting your own neck on the block, as it were. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing uh, for Christian communicators to do, to equip people with the tools to think for themselves through the things that everyone, including uh, we, uh, are saying. One last example. Um, although he rejects actually explicitly rejects the existence of objective moral values. Dawkins constantly criticises the evils of religion. 
you, well, you can't have it both ways. That's, that's contradicting yourself. You can, you can say, no, religion is objectively evil, for X, Y, and Z reasons, or you can say there is no objective evil, but you can't say both things consistently, right? So, over the course of the book, some characters do change their minds a bit, uh, some quite a lot, maybe, but none becomes a Christian by the end of the book. Uh, there, there is no sense in which, after a whole term of discussing uh, this book, uh, despite Astrid's best efforts at uh, arguing her case as they go through, that everybody suddenly goes, oh, good grief, well, um, we should all become followers of Christ then, hooray! You know, uh, if you've seen the, f the first uh, film in that series of God's Not Dead, uh, which kind of takes that approach, uh, the student who's put on the spot by his philosophy professor to defend his belief in God, and the whole class at the beginning are like anti him, and by the end of term, the whole class are like, yes, we now believe in God, and we're going to go to a pop concert with you, kind of. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's, there's certainly some movement, but, but no one has actually shifted their position <laughs> by the end of, of the book. Um, this, I think, is much more realistic. <laughs> and I hope it invites the, the non-Christian readers to explore further without kind of feeling browbeaten, without feeling I've assumed that they're going to be uh, siding with, with Astrid uh, in what's going on. Uh, so as I say, on my, uh, my website, each of my books has a, has a page and you will find linked there resources uh, including a list of uh, uh, meeting by meeting, chapter by chapter resources that I keep updated from time to time. Uh, preview on Google Books, uh, there's uh, podcasts, so this will get added to the page eventually. Um, uh, ambient coffee shop sounds from YouTube. The book's set in a coffee shop if you want to read it whilst having coffee shop noises in the background, go for it. Uh, uh, my YouTube playlist on I, on my YouTube channel. I have lots of playlists on different apologetic topics and theological topics and things. And so when I do a book, I just create a, pl a playlist for the book, and I mention the playlist in the bibliography, and then I can keep that playlist updated with new material as time goes on. Uh, the wonders of living in the internet age. And as I say, uh, the YouTube playlist, Haroma's playlist, music from artists mentioned in Outgrowing God, and I think you can kind of. Uh, trace some of Hiromi's thinking and feeling uh, through the journey of the book, through the different tracks that she's putting and adding to her playlist over time. Um, so uh, that, that continues that sort of uh, artistic existential side of the, of the project. <laughs>